Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. Did you know that concrete can actually be used to store CO2 and you can even sell credits for that process? And even it can make that concrete stronger and cure more quickly? Well, no, neither did I. Um, but this is something that we're going to discuss in this episode with Chris Griffiths, Head of Product Sustainability for one of our fantastic sponsors, Marshalls. In this episode, we talk about sustainable manufacturing, the challenges and opportunities there are when it comes to creating products more sustainably, um, and the reality of this side of things as you know, we need these products for society, but we need to find a way to make sure that they're created in a responsible way um, and you know, can have as minimal impact on the environment as possible. So this is a really interesting episode and I hope you enjoy it. It's important to remember that sustainability doesn't just relate to the environment, it relates to your finances as well. That's why we switched to Beans Accountants. Beans operate on a package system, so you always know where you stand. We halved our accountancy costs when we moved to them, and one of our associates moved to them as well and reduced theirs by two thirds. With free tax advice, accountancy support, and everything else they offer, you can't go wrong. So make sure you check out Beans Accountants in the description below, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hi Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Really interested in discussing a bit more about product sustainability and the actual realities of how we can make businesses more sustainable and the challenges that we are kind of faced when we come to do that. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's something that's, that we're really passionate about as a business. It's yeah. something that's been core to our strategy for, um, for more than 20 years. And, um, yeah, and we've learned a lot on the way. Yeah. There's no doubt that um, we've been down a few rabbit holes and um, you know, we, we've backed a few wrong horses along the way. Um, but that's inevitable when you're pushing things, you're pushing boundaries, and you're you're trying to pioneer in a space. And uh, yeah, I'm really proud of the work that we've done. So we're happy to share it. Brilliant. So you're obviously from Marshalls. So Marshalls are very kind enough to sponsor us. And one of the reasons we were so happy to have you guys as a sponsor is we know about the environmental work you're doing. You know, looking at how we can actually take products that we absolutely need. You know, when we talk about the climate, we talk about no concrete, we talk about all of these kind of things. But actually, the reality is. We need cities, we need pavements, we need all of these things. They're products that are inevitable. Um, but the question is, how do you make them sustainable? It's not getting rid of them necessarily. It's looking at how we can actually embed sustainability and deliver things in a way that can, we can do as sensitively as, as possible, really. And that's exactly where I position it. I think mm -hmm. we're, the, we're the pragmatic compromise. Mm -hmm. um, it would be lovely to think we have wonderful green spaces everywhere and you know we let all the um, natural elements flourish and you know every, we have grass uh, everywhere but we all drive cars we have mm. bikes you know we're trying to encourage people to walk more um, you know we need robust infrastructure mm -hmm. um, concrete has been one of the materials that's been used for, for aeons very effectively um, the, the challenge, as far as we're concerned, is to how to bring more of uh, how to bring more nature-based solutions into the kind of schemes that we supply to, but also how to make concrete more sustainably. And that's mm -hmm. yeah, th those th those are the sort of two areas I think that we you know as a business we've always strived to um, bring our uh, you know to, to minimise our impact. Um, but in the schemes that we provide to, what we want to do is make it easy for, for our customers, for our specifiers to, um, to, to integrate the kind of features that are, going to, um, that are going to help fight the climate crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also understanding 
how some of these things are used because concrete is a really interesting example because obviously it's one of the flagship things that we need to try and reduce the use of um, or change significantly but actually it can still have real important applications that can be more sustainable than alternative options. So for example, we do a lot of work on with one of our partners, Davies White, um, on play projects, and they very often use concrete footpaths to wind through the scheme. Now, a lot of people say, well, you're trying to be sustainable, all the structures are wood, the, the materials for the most of the floor is sort of sand or wood chip, which is playable, adds more value to children, but actually you've got to have something strong and robust and one of the strongest and robust, most robust things to sort of form the, cent the spine of these play features people can move through with pushchairs and all these kind of things is concrete. So actually, whilst it can be a very polluting product, if you look at the life cycle of it, it can actually work out much better. And that's often what's missed. The, yeah, um, a couple of things to pick up on that, because I I'd absolutely agree with your last point is that... Um, I get asked about three questions on a, on a virtually daily basis, and one of those is, what are your sustainable products? And I always say, well, it's, it could be how it's made. So it could be, you could be looking at a material that's made at a works that's you know, a zero emissions works, or it could be what it's made out of. So mm -hmm. what's the carbon footprint of that product? But it could also be what it actually does. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important element to, to look at. And an example that I always cite um, there, um, is is rock wall insulation because mm -hmm. that's something that um it's got it's you know it's rocks that have been superheated and stretched so they're incredibly energy intensive in that first sort of uh, in that cradle to gate period of its um of its manufacture um so if you just looked at that element you'd never touch it but if you consider what it does over its lifetime all the the heat energy that it holds onto so looking at its full life cycle um impact um, you know, it's, it's a truly sustainable product. Mm -hmm. um, are there better available? Yeah, there probably are. You know, ideally, you'd want something that doesn't have that high carbon load right at the start. But until we, until we find that, you know, Rockwall's still a, um, a you know, a, a, a reasonable, sensible product to use. Um, the other point that I want to pick up on is, is the idea that concrete is, uh, is you said polluting. You know, it's um, concrete in itself. Doesn't have to be um, doesn't have to be bad for the environment. Con the, the issue with concrete is that it's got a lot of cement in it, mm -hmm. uh, and cement is incredibly carbon intensive in its manufacture. So there are various things that we can do, various things that we are doing and have been working on for a long time to um, uh, to reduce the footprint of of, of our carbon product. Sorry, to reduce the footprint of our concrete product. Mm -hmm. um, the first is to reduce the amount of cement that goes into them. So that's something that we've been on, uh, underway with for a long time. We've, um, with our concrete blocks, for example, um, there's, uh, we, we've reduced the cement content by 40%, a minimum of 40%. Mm -hmm. In some of our works, depending on the, the materials available, um, we've reduced it by up to 60%. So that has a massive impact on, mm -hmm. on the carbon footprint of the products. And you can only do that by finding consistent sources of alternative materials. Uh, by working with sort of admixtures, you know, working with the mixed design to come up with something that's um, still structurally robust, still gives people the aesthetic they want, um, but you know, it, it does away with uh, with the carbon intensive element of the mix. Um, so that's something that we we've been doing for a long time. The the real sort of exciting piece is um, all about carbon sequestration. Mm -hmm. And this is the, um, it, it's long been known that 
concrete absorbs carbon over its lifetime. Um, and all the science tells us that that process starts, you know, it absorbs a lot of concrete at the start, it absorbs a lot of carbon at the start, and then over its lifetime, it'll, it'll reduce, but it continues to reabsorb carbon throughout its lifetime. And that carbon's permanently locked in mm -hmm. through a catalytic process. We can exploit that mm -hmm. by collecting excess carbon. I'm going to make this sound simple, and it's really not. But um, we can collect excess carbon from a, uh, a different process. Mm -hmm. um, and we can either force it into the, the mix when we're mixing the concrete um, right at the start, or alternatively, we can uh, inject it as a gas into the curing chamber um, at, the end of the, uh, at the end of the manufacturing process. And the advantage for us is that the concrete is, achieves strength much quicker mm -hmm. um, so that we can, yeah, anything we can do to reduce our cycle time is good for our business because that means we can get it into our customers' hands quicker. It's not sitting around in, uh, in our yards. Um, obviously, it's stopping carbon escaping into the atmosphere. Um, yeah, that's permanently locked away. Even when the concrete gets crushed at the end of its life, it's not, it's not going to be released. So we can absolutely demonstrate how much carbon has been sequestered in the block. You know, it's a, it, you know, it's a very defendable um, science. Um, and finally, that's great because that means, from our point of view, from a business point of view, we can charge carbon credits for that. Mm -hmm. um, or we can charge other businesses for carbon credits, and they can use that as a, a platinum-level carbon offset. Because mm -hmm. um, we've, yeah, we've done a lot in this space over the past 20 years and we've, done, we've achieved everything we've achieved without offsetting because we know that a lot of carbon offset programs at the moment are riddled with, um, yeah, riddled with problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely they are. Yeah, that's very interesting. I didn't realise it was injected into the process. Um, that's the first um, one that we... we, we, we we're the first company in the UK to do this at scale and at one of our works using carbon cure technology. Um, and that's, it, it, we're only just dipping our toe in the water. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, it's a very sort of early stage of the process, early stage of the learning process. So it has a, a fairly minimal effect on the carbon footprint of, um, of the actual block itself, but it removes 30 tonnes of carbon from that works mm -hmm. over, over, over a year. So, you know, if you consider that we've got, what, I think 20 manufacturing plants, once we upscale that technology and put that technology into all the works across our network, yeah, that's going to make a significant dent on our scope three, scope three emissions. And we're also pushing the boundaries. Because we've got the, the kit installed, um, we can now start in, introducing more of it. We mm -hmm. can start sort of pushing that. And the ideal, of course, is to is to take the excess carbon from the cement manufacturers, so then we've got a nice sort of closed loop story. Because mm -hmm. for all the good work that we're doing in this space, and we know plenty of our peers are doing it as well, and we're all sharing ideas because we, you know, there's a lot of motivated people in this sector who really want to, um, yeah, really want to make a difference. But because we're working with our partners, we know that this, the cement suppliers are all really motivated. Yeah, they've got their net zero targets as well. So. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's what keeps me optimistic because when you work in this space, it can be fairly depressing can't yeah. you? when you're looking through. The, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it can be. The, the outlook can be fairly bleak sometimes, but you look at the work that, that we're doing, that you know, the, the wider industry is doing, and we've, we've got the best opportunity out of any other industry in, in the world, really, to make such a, a massive difference. And it's only going to happen from 
investing in it, understanding it, and and trialing it. You know, taking the risks. And that's we we've been doing it for a long time, but it's, it's accelerated no end in the last in the last sort of two three years, really. Oh, I bet it has. I bet it has. It's interesting to to hear some of that because for me. Whenever I think of products becoming more sustainable, I immediately just think of right, okay, energy. How do you know? It's more about sort of reducing the energy used to create those products, because to me, you know, as you can tell, I don't know a great deal about about the process. But I always just think, well, cement, cement. There's only there's not really that much you can kind of do with it because it that's what it is. So it's interesting to find out how you guys are sort of tackling that problem and the fact that you can actually put the carbon directly into it. And I had heard of a couple of projects where, well, I've heard of, I have heard of concrete absorbing carbon over time, um, but I never really understood how much of a difference it would, it would actually make in sort of the grand scheme of things. And quite often it's covered when you put it in buildings or whatever anyway, so how yeah, much impact does that have? Um, so being able to deal with it initially is really valuable. Um, but also there's, there's kind of a question there around, um, how do you actually make things like cement more sustainable in, in, in and of itself? So it's great that obviously reducing it is the first step. That that's obviously an, an immediate saving, um, reducing the content. But have you, do you know much about how some of those cement suppliers are sort of trying to get the product down to net zero? Are they sort of trying to catalyze it in different ways? Or? I don't know. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, it's just, it's just something I don't... Well, I mean, I know nothing about it. So just interesting. Our materials guys talk to cement suppliers all the time, you know, mm. and they, they work very closely with them. Um, and yeah, we, we work on projects together because we're one of the biggest, um, one of their biggest customers. But yeah, our, our materials guys will be best placed to talk about what they're doing in, in different um, in different sectors, I guess. One of the things that we look at um, is dispensing with cement altogether, mm -hmm. and we've um, we've just um, completed our first full-scale uh, production trial of cement-free concrete blocks. Okay. Um, so that's going to reduce the carbon footprint of the product really quite significantly. The issue is always what you replace it with. Mm -hmm. um, it's got to be, you've got to have a consistent source of it. Um, you've got to investigate what the carbon load of the alternative product as well, because, you know, yeah, people sort of fetishize cement-free concrete, but some of the alternatives aren't, aren't that good either. Um, so uh, yeah, it's really it, it's really important to investigate the investigate the alternatives, investigate the old, the, the solutions, um, but you need to take risks as well. And the other consequence, inevitably, unfortunately, is price mm. because the alternative materials are frequently a lot more expensive, and we will absorb as much of that cost as we can. But the R and D costs money; it takes time; it uses an awful lot of resource. Um, so. We've always taken the stance that we want to, we don't want to have a, a green range and a, because that by inference suggests that we've got a, a range that's not. Mm -hmm. And we've always applied our sustainability model across the business. You know, so um, all the work that we've done at an operational level to drive carbon out of our operation, we've reduced our carbon footprint by 50% across the business between 2008 and 2020. You know, it doesn't happen by accident. Um, so that affects all of the, the products that we make and we're, we're proud of that. But we now we're emerging into a space where, if customer, it's kind of giving people the opportunity to put the money where their mouth is. People have been asking us for cement-free for low-carbon products. We're making them, but you know, is the market ready to to pay for them? 
Indeed, I mean, that's a, it's the green premium, isn't it? And you see it in, with so many things. But I mean, as people invest in it more, as we research it more, as it becomes the standard, that of course those things will come down, but that's part of the difficult, part of the challenge of the time we're in, is that actually we are in this transitional period where all those things are emerging. And that's one of the things I think, again, I think people sort of forget, is that actually, whilst we do have a lot of fixes, and there are a lot of quick fixes, some of these more significant things when it comes to actually products and industry, it's not an overnight change. It's an investment in R&D yeah. and, and new materials and, and research and all these things as, as well. That was all different ways of saying R&D that, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but um, you know, all, all new R&D, all new products, materials, accessibility to supply chains as well, all of these things have to change. Um, but then the, the knock-on price can be you know, really significant. And I have seen some green, green products where I've looked at it and thought, well, no one's going to pay for that. You know, and it, it, just a throwaway example was sort of solar roads. You know, great concept, but when I looked at the economics of it, it absolutely makes no sense. Um, it's completely unviable. So it was at the time. Maybe it's changed. You know, that's the thing. Great idea. Keep looking at it, but at the moment, not viable. And that, that, so. That's a lot of these technologies that we're sort of launching and trialing now are things that we tried six, seven, eight years ago, mm -hmm. and there was just not the business case. And that's the sad reality. Yeah, as a, as a purist, you know, mm. I'd, it, 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 you know, I used to get really frustrated and go, well, why, you know, who cares whether the market is interested or not? But, you know, to be a truly sustainable business, you've, or, you know, for a truly sustainable society, you've got to balance the economic with mm -hmm. the environmental, with the social. Not one of those things. And I think that the pandemic probably brought home how important the economic side of, 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 of the ESG circle is because um, without that, you know, you can't do the R and D. You can't, do, you know, society doesn't function. So, um, yeah, I, I'm really sort of pleased that we're now in a place where our customers are happy to sort of work with us on these solutions, mm. and they're and they're actually pushing us, and they're pushing an open door because we've got the all we have to do is look through the file, you know, blow the dust off the files, and we've got so many solutions that were were trialed that were ready to present that now we can we can actually take to an, an engaged and interested market. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think touch you touched on ESG, and I think that's that's something we definitely need to talk about, and I think we'll come back to that in a moment. But I'd be interested to find out a bit more about other things that you guys are doing in terms of sustainability within the business? Um, because obviously there's the product side, which is the main part of the business, but we, we've talked about cement, but obviously there's things like kilns and all this kind of stuff as well that are needed to sort of cure the product and also within other parts of the business too. We don't need kilns to cure concrete. You don't. That's one of the big differences between um, clay products and concrete products, because mm -hmm. concrete cures naturally through just an exothermic mm -hmm. process. Sometimes, depending on climatic conditions you know in the, in the winter or when it's very cold or when it's very humid we might use some heat to mm -hmm. um to to speed that process up yeah but um other than that no there's there's very little energy involved in concrete production um interesting but the um yeah the the most of the 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 carbon mm -hmm. comes from the the cement content so that's how if we can drive cement out of it then all of a sudden we turn from being a a relatively um, <clears throat> dirty business to be in a, a, a very clean one. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd assumed I'd assumed there was some heat energy used in the process to accelerate it, but I didn't realise it was so little. Hmm. Interesting. We use some heat in well, 
One of the interesting stories, and there's all sorts of little anecdotes I could tell you about the the little things that we've done to um, you know to, to help reduce our impact. Um, but packaging for a long time, you know, people now ask us for for zero packaging. They want to get rid of all the plastic packaging for all the right reasons. Um, and it's in our interest to do that as well because it costs us money. Yeah. Um, and it also costs money because the the way you would have wrapped a, a pack of products 10 years ago, it comes through on the conveyor, a robot puts a, a, a bag over the top and then it goes through a heat oven so the bag shrinks onto mm -hmm. the... So all of that process is really, uh, you know, if we can get rid of that, that saves us money on the plastic, saves us money on the heating, the customer doesn't have to get rid of it at the end of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when, when they're on site. So it's a win-win. The issue is, um, that with some products, so we've driven the packaging off as much as we can in as, as many different product ranges and at as many sites as we can, but you still need an element in some product ranges um, <clears throat> for health and safety reasons. Um, you know, you don't want heavy concrete stuff shaking around in the back of the van. So we've minimized it as much as we can. So we've perhaps got rid of concrete bags and moved to plastic bands. But a lot of this work is understanding what the unintended consequences are. Mm -hmm. So if we, Remove the bags, brilliant. We've solved that problem. But then what might happen is you get a you get a pallet of flags mm -hmm. or you get a pallet of blocks on side and because they've been exposed to the weather, they're not in the right condition. So they get sent back mm -hmm. and then while they're being sent back, they'll probably get crushed and reused as aggregate. So what's the carbon load of all that? Whereas yeah. if we'd have put a small, you know, a minimized plastic cover on the top, um, the customer gets the product in a usable condition so it, so many of these things are a balance and so many of these things depend on what lens you're looking through and this is one of the frustrations in the space at the moment i think yeah. um it's a site another one we you know we, we've had our focus on carbon for a long time we started working with the carbon trust in 2008 before it was fashionable and we worked with them um to road test the methodology that's now in uh, in PAS 2050, because the Carbon Trust are the experts, right? You know, they're, they're the people who uh, who literally wrote the book. Um, so we we've been working them to understand our impact and to help to to reduce it uh, ever since. So that's been a, that that's been our our focus. We're also asked, though, equally, you know, when when we share our carbon footprint data, people say, okay, but what products have got how, uh, recycled content in, for example. Um, we use recycled content whenever we can, but that is, sorry, we use recycled content where it's appropriate, but more often than not, that drives the carbon footprint up. Mm -hmm. Because effectively, if you're collecting a, you know, a, a previously used material and transporting it to a site to be crushed, and then you're putting that back into the material, that carries a heavier carbon load than just using a, a locally sourced virgin aggregate. So the issue is, What's more important? Is it mm. circularity or is it carbon? Because it makes absolute sense to me to reuse stuff, you know, re, you know, yeah. reuse resources. Um, but that currently isn't the thing that's being targeted. You know, the, the, the focus is very much on carbon for all the right reasons, probably. So what do you want? You know, people say, mm. recycle content, carbon. You can have one or the other, but you're unlikely to have both. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We, we talked about this previously around sort of the recycled content issue. 
um, because it's a really challenging one uh, to, to try and actually come up with a solution. And, and when we were having this conversation, we talked about the other environmental things as well around sort of water use and all of this. And what do you kind of rank as the most important is, is a really big challenge. Um, because to me as well, you know, I think recycled content, absolutely, that's what we should be doing. We should be reusing whatever we have that's a waste product. But if the carbon cost of that is higher, you then have the question of, well, is it worth it? <laughs> you know, should we be recycling it? Actually, it'd be better to just, you know, stick it in yeah. a landfill or whatever. But obviously, that's not ideal either. And that's where some, I think sometimes like the lifetime cost of these things could, could be more helpful. I don't know if that's something that's looked at for recycled content. What would be the cost of disposing it and everything else? Or does it still not? It, it less about the cost, but certainly when it comes to carbon calculations. And this is something that... Um, we're preoccupied, the industry is very sort of preoccupied with at the moment. Um, I mentioned earlier talking about sort of life cycle, whole life cycle analysis in terms of carbon. So, you know, don't just look at the cradle to gate element, the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the emissions that are um, in extra material extraction and in um, manufacturing and packaging, but then look at what, what good it does during its lifetime. That's the right approach. Mm -hmm. And that's vindicated by the... Um, uh, the, the Competition and Market Authority's um, Green Claims Code that was launched earlier this year. Yeah, they say that one of their six um, bullet points, one of their sort of tenets in their in their um, in their manifesto, if you like, is that any claims you make about a product should consider its full life cycle, not just mm -hmm. one element of it. That's right, surely. But that is open then to people being rather optimistic or disingenuous about what happens to something at the end of its life. Yeah, I might like to think that our products are sort of lifted manually and then reused, um, you know, in their original form, because that mm. would be great for the carbon footprint if it just becomes a, a permanently reused product. And we've seen examples of EPD documents, environmental product declarations, where um, clay pavers, Dutch clay pavers, claim that their their pavers are, are lifted at the end of life and then reused again as clay pavers. I can't say that doesn't happen, but it seems unlikely to me. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect that as often as not, that's going to they're going to get crushed and um, and used as landfill. Um, and because we don't know what's going to happen to something at the end of its life, I think it's probably not very sensible to make that claim within your um, it, it, yeah within the, the the carbon footprint that you're claiming. But that's the world that we're in at the moment. Yeah, nobody really knows what the carbon impact of a whole life cycle is. Yeah. And there are a lot of assumptions to make and a lot of um, estimates to be made based on best knowledge. And people are, you know, genuinely, people are, are, are you know, being really quite sensible about it. But even so, it's open to um, open to greenwash. That, indeed, yeah. And this is where some of the economic issues come in. You know, for example, depending how it's laid, if you've got pavers that could be used again, the cost of salvaging them you know, having a guy there chipping bits of cement off or whatever um, to use them again can be really expensive. So are people actually going to do that? And as you say, it's more likely in a lot of cases that they'll just come in and bulldoze it, crush it, use it as an aggregate somewhere else. I mean, we um, there's an ex there was a company I met a little while ago, really interesting company doing lots of sustainable carpets. Yes. Um, and they they do a lot where they come, they'll, their, their offer is basically to come in if you're retrofitting a shop or whatever, they'll take away the old carpet, whoever it's from, and part of their fee and everything is sort of processing and recycling all of that. Um, and that's part of their sort of offer on sustainability. And I thought that's fantastic. 
But how often does that happen? Okay, it might be great if you've got an office block that's just doing a bit of regeneration, but there's gonna be a huge amount of projects where someone's come in to clear the site, they've ripped everything out and just got rid of it, and then you're coming in later to, to actually fit something new. So, and absolutely they're doing the right thing, that's what they should be doing, it's a fantastic um, idea, it's a fantastic thing to do, and you know, I think it's great. Um, however, there is this kind of issue where there's still such a big separation of where services come in, and that's the that's the problem really, is how do we make sure that things are actually recycled properly when it's a demolition company coming in. Yeah. And obviously that's part of their job to do that, but when it's an, an old carpet as an example, or pavers, when there's such a big cost potentially associated with dealing with that properly, how often does it actually get properly resolved? It's, it's, it's interesting that ideas that floated across the de desk sort of seven, eight years ago and got laughed out of the room mm -hmm. suddenly coming back around again. But this, this idea, because we're, we're a manufacturer, we manufacture products and we sell them to customers. And that's usually where our sort of involvement ends. But we were kicking ideas around um, quite some time ago now. And the idea that um, people subscribe to rental, you know, you rent most things, you rent your car effectively, mm. you, know, you lease your car, you, you pay subscriptions to things. The idea that instead of buying a pavement office that then becomes yours and we have nothing to do with, the, the, the idea that perhaps we should look at becoming a rental model, so a local authority um, sort of pays a subscription service and then we look after it, we maintain it, we lift it at the end of its useful life and then we recycle it or replace it. Um, it's really complicated mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, it's, as I say, it got laughed out of the room six, seven years ago, but people rent jeans now, you know, you mm -hmm. can, you know they're, they're, there's businesses where you pay a subscription and when you've had enough of that pair of jeans, you send them back so you don't, buy, you never own them, you know, they're just something. So, yeah, I saw one for children's toys the other day, where yes. you, instead of buying kids toys every week, you get a, a new box of toys and you send the old one back and it's industrially cleaned and sent to somebody else and it kind of keeps it fresh and it's that, that kind of idea, isn't it? And, it's, and, and the beauty is from a, from a financial point of view, and you know, there's, again, let's not be squeamish, there's nothing sort of unethical about, uh, about making a profit, but from a financial point of view, that gives you a you know, vision of what you're mm. bringing in every month for however many years. So, it's, so that's why um, businesses like that kind of financial model. Um, how we deliver on that as, you know, we, we, we're not involved in insulation, we're not involved in maintenance, we're not involved in uh, end of life treatment, but should we be? Mm. And should we be partnering with other people? Those are the kind of conversations that we're sort of exploring and starting to have. And I think that's where, yeah, that'd be a really interesting place to, to go to. Yeah, that is really interesting. It's not something I'd really considered, but it makes a huge amount of sense um, when you think of circularity. So uh, yeah. it's where that, that circularity conversation comes back in. And also, you know, you, because you're guaranteeing a suitable use for that product at the end of its, what would be the end of its life. And where we have products that are incredibly robust, um, you know, like pavers, for example, they, they, in theory, they could be used for a huge, a huge length of time, um, but, but they're not as we regenerate areas and this kind of thing. So, but there's no reason why they couldn't be used elsewhere thereafter. I think the, the idea, um, it, it probably applies to some product types more than others. We do, mm. we, we sell an awful lot of natural stone paving mm -hmm. and, um, the idea that you might be able to buy, yeah, we've, we've paved some of the most sort of prestigious locations all over the country with, with, with this stuff. So if you could pick up 
natural stone that had been uh, that had paved Buckingham Palace or paved mm. Trafalgar Square yeah. or something like that. Yeah, that comes with a you know. We, oh yeah, that's true. People buy bits of turf from their favourite football teams or people. There was a nightclub in Halifax and they sold the carpet to make money. Um, so you know, we, we could we could start looking at that model as well. But that that requires a massive change in um, in in the kind of business we are. It, yeah, I mean, there's a timber company in London that deals purely with reclaimed timber from the docks and places like that. Right. And that's becoming something that's used in a lot of high-profile projects that we're involved with now because they want that sort of story behind it. You know, this has been dredged out the river and, you know, we're reusing this really valuable timber that's really beautiful. Um, I can't remember the name of the company now off the top of my head, but... Um, but that's very, very, very interesting, and it's that that kind of thing of actually going right. Okay, what happens with this thing that is otherwise at the end of its life, or we're retrofitting this part of the dock? Um, they're taking all the decking up, and then that decking is sort of repurposed, reinvigorated, and now is being used to make benches or, or a new deck somewhere else in an area that's not as intensive as it perhaps was, so it's suitable to be used there. And that's a better way of sort of again thinking of sort of the sustainability. I think it's been done with piers. There've been yeah. piers that have been lifted or, or demolished, and they've taken it from there, and they're now using it in sort of public realm um, products, products, projects. Because um, a lot of these products are very sustainable, where they've been by the sea or, or in water, so they're naturally very hardy, so they can keep being used. So it's a similar kind of situation to your products. I think uh, somebody uh, explained that in. Um I, I can't remember the country now, but in um, some Scandinavian country, that when a, when a building's being due for demolition, when a building's um, a, a about to be demolished, um, they look at it as a kind of uh, as a builder's merchant, mm. and they'll say, "Well, we've got this much glass, we've got this much brick, we've got this much timber, we've got this." So, so they go go around and do an inventory, and that has a, a value, a cachet. So we'd see it as a something that needs to be disposed of. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, if you, if you flip your thinking, then it's like that becomes something that is a, a, a rich source of materials that you can then reuse. Um, but again, it comes back to that cost time thing because to disorganise, yeah, absolutely, is, absolutely. is complicated, it's expensive. But I can't, I can't help thinking that that's the way the construction industry needs to be. Well, it's how it go. used to be. It's yeah, how, it, it's how yeah. it used to be. I remember my grandparents, you know, my granddad was a builder. Um, they used to, he used to do a lot of demolition work and they take all the wood out of the houses and that was what would heat their house. Yeah. So they, that's what they use the timber for. I think most of it, the extensions on his house, you know, were reclaimed brick from projects he did because he couldn't afford to buy it himself, you know. Um, and that was a bit more of the reality of the, of the world in it those was, days. It was done out of necessity back yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely. But now we're recognising that actually there was a real value in, in that kind of approach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, it, it, it changes. It, is this because we're old? Are we, or is this because I'm old? Are we going, the old ways are so much better. I think that... Um, well, it's need, isn't it? I think, you know, back then there was a need because there was more of an economic need because people couldn't necessarily afford it and that things were less available. Now we've got everything at the end of our fingertips, but the need is coming from the impact that that, that is having on the environment. So the need has perhaps changed, but there is still a requirement to actually look at these things in a more sensible manner, you know, a less wasteful manner, I suppose. Yeah. Absolutely, it's um, nothing's going to happen particularly quick in that space. Mm. I think, um, yeah, the, the 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 real focus is on cleaning up operations and cleaning up, um, yeah, cleaning up carbon. That's very much where the focus is at the moment. Um, circularity absolutely should be 
on the agenda as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that we talk about all the time. But again, it comes back to that conversation. What's going to have? What's going to carry the biggest carbon load? Because that feels like. I think we need some guidance, though. And, and that's my frustration personally, because yeah, I'm telling you, because that's my opinion. Mm. My opinion is that carbon is is the overriding sort of um, issue. Um, but you know, if we were to have some central sort of body, if you know, if we were to have a government statement, for imagine that'd say, uh, you know, it's more important to reuse materials. You know, that's that's our focus. Um, then that would help. That would save a lot of time. Mm. Um, because at the moment, you know, every, everybody's trying to do everything. The, the sustainability space has exploded. I said that we've been on this journey for 20 years. Um, and it was quite lonely for a lot of those years because, and it wasn't easy because, you know, you've got to convince people to, to do stuff that's not particularly fashionable. Um, but it takes some part, you know, my old boss, Chris Harrop, he absolutely drove it into the, uh, into the business, drove it onto the agenda. And that wasn't easy for him. But on the other hand, whatever you choose, because there's nobody to challenge you, that's that's reasonable and that's mm-hmm. right. That's the, the right thing to do. So we got good mileage out of doing the right things um, based on you know, best knowledge at the time. We're now emerging into a space, though, where everybody's trying to do the right thing. Everybody's sort of working together, collaborating. We're all looking at each other going, well, what's the right way forward? What's the, um, yeah, what's the best methodology to align to? What's the best strategy to adopt and it's not clear anymore it's Mm -hmm. not you know we're finding our way towards that and it's um you know it can be really it can be really frustrating i think we need we need stronger legislation we need better guidance um we need um you know it's it's not for lack of uh will Mm -hmm. because yeah i talk to my peers in the sector we're all doing great things but people are kind of um have you heard of green hushing? This is the latest. You know, green wash was where people pretended to be very environmentally sound, but weren't. Uh, green hushing is the kind of um, the, the sort of pullback that's occurring at the moment. Because maybe eighteen months, two, three years ago, everybody was shouting, really proud of the achievements they make because they've done great things. But now, because there's very little in the way of understanding or guidance about where to go we're kind of clamming up a bit because we're going, well, I don't want to stick me over the battlements and say, I've aligned myself to this, um, uh, you know, th- this particular methodology or this particularly st- particular strategy because if that turns out to be the wrong one, mm-hmm. then, so everybody's, it's not that people aren't working. You know, I know that, I know what we're doing, we're doing that, I know what our peers are doing. The, the industry is in probably more, um, well, it's certainly busier in this space than it's ever been. And there's mm-hmm. so much exciting work going on. But people are nervous to share it in case they... Um, I always talk about, you know, do you back the Betamax or do you back, back the VHS? You want to back the system, the method, that is going to be the widely accepted one. Mm-hmm. And just, just to give you an, a story with that, I mentioned that we work at the Carbon Trust. The Carbon Trust are the experts when it comes to carbon. You know, we've worked with them for years. The, the people there are, you know, incredibly detailed, inc- incredibly thorough, very knowledgeable. They're the, you know, they're, they're the people that we'd go to. We recognised though about twelve to eighteen months ago that um, the EPDs were becoming the, um, the the sort of industry standard. The 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 market was demanding these documents to understand sustainable the sustainable performance of a product. Um, EPDs. 
Sorry, I was going to say, what is an EPD? Sorry, uh, Environmental Product Declarations. Mm -hmm. And they're, um, yeah, EPDs are great because they allow you to demonstrate quite clearly what modules of a product's footprint boundary you're quoting. So when you get three or four EPDs together, it's not dead simple because there's various little tricks that you need to understand. But broadly, you can make fair comparisons, fair apples mm -hmm. for apples comparisons. So you can see, you know, this element is cleaner. This element is, you know, is higher in carbon. This, uh, you can, you, you, th that's what customers want to get to. Um, and does that cover more of a range of things then than just carbon? So that's like water use, energy use, absolutely. that kind of thing. Yeah, there's all yeah. sorts of things. At the moment, people are only interested in the carbon element, yeah, but yeah. you also get all of the other sort of environmental impacts of a, of a product as well, which is really important. Um, the issue, and the issue that um, is sort of recognised across the industry is that, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, a lot of the the assumptions towards the end of life are open to people making their own mm -hmm. uh, making their own assumptions. Um, and that's not, yeah, that's where it, it, it doesn't provide you with a fair comparison. So we, we always use the Carbon Trust to provide our carbon footprints because they're the experts and because they made those assumptions for us based on their standard models. So that was something that we could stand behind. We weren't marking our own homework. We were using the, the external experts. Because the markets move towards EPDs, we've had to do so as well. But that comes with all sorts of other issues as well. So this is, yeah, that was an example of, uh, yeah, we we use the Carbon Trust for all the right reasons. Um, and we still work with them for all sorts of other things as well because they're, you know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're the experts. But in terms of talking to customers, we now have to use um, EPDs, which certainly have their advantages, um, but again, are not don't have that kind of, um, that distance, that sort of independent sort of distance that I think mm -hmm. should be there in um, in any kind of reporting process. Um, so it's a, yeah, that's a that's a frustration I think at the moment. But it we're we're, we're in a really fast moving space. We're in a fast evolving space. So you look, you look at um, you know IT departments in every business will change the system that they use every twelve months yeah. because you know a new one will come along that's better or more appropriate or more. So um, I think we're we're kind of in that space at the moment. That's how it feels. Yeah, you said before we before we started about it being sort of the wild west at the moment, and I think. It very much feels like that. The more I've sort of looked into sort of ESG, which I think we can probably come on to a bit now, so, um, I found that actually you start looking into it and you just think, well, actually, there's so many people sort of doing the same thing, but slightly differently. And I've started looking at it as a, from a novice point of view, and I start thinking, well, actually, it seems to me like lots of bits are being missed or, or whatever. And I think when you try to create something that's incredibly broad to cover multiple industries or whatever it may be, I think that... Um, it also becomes incredibly difficult to figure out exactly what you're going to quantify and how, and how do you actually value some of those things. And an, another example, actually going back slightly, on sort of the sustainable product side, you were talking previously about, so there's recycled content, but then there's also secondary content, um, which is not recycled content, but it is a waste product that's being used in the process. Is that right? And, and I think that's a good example because that's something that is make, inherently making a product more sustainable, but it's not actually quantifiable. I think it is, it is quantifiable and it's recognised in, um, you know, in, in various methodologies as being, mm -hmm. uh, being better. But again, it's really important to, to, 
to separate them out and to recognise the difference. You know, recycled material is something that's been pre-used, yeah. that's then been you know, reprocessed to, um, to do something else. Um, a secondary material is just a, a byproduct of a different process. Mm-hmm. Um, the two, so it's never been used before, so you can't it's claim yeah, it's technically virgin, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's, yeah. A, but it's a waste product. Otherwise, it would have gone to landfill. Yeah. So it, it does have a value. It does have, um, uh, you know, it, it, it is recognised in, in EPD methodology, for example, you know, mm. and, and the benefits are, are there. But there's, again, there's a sort of grey area in the explanation about that. And we see, we see that in, in various comms that, that come out and people claim recycled when they mean secondary. Mm. And it's important that people understand the difference, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think, I think that's where the, the EPD thing is, um, is incredibly valuable because it is demonstrating that as well. Whereas if you look at a company website, it's not actually on there. You can't necessarily see that. So it's kind of a hidden element of sustainability or perhaps it has been until now whereas now it will start to be much clearer um you know and perhaps that should be a key thing on on you know an epd certificate which is very obvious um because if you add that and the recycled content together actually you know you start going oh actually yeah it's actually really quite good it starts telling the story it starts yeah. telling and, and i think that's the position that we've always taken is that as as a responsible manufacturer i genuinely believe we are right mm. i do you know i i this isn't marketing veneer. You know, I genuinely think we do the right things for the right reasons in the right way. Um, we give our customers all the data that we can, uh, you know, all the information that we can and leave it up to them to make the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, we'll tell you what the carbon is. We'll tell you about the, you know, talking about the ESG, we'll tell you about what the, the ethical risk of, you know, certain products might be. Um, but ultimately we have to, we have to leave that up to the customer. We can't make that decision. The, the issue is, you know, we're asking them, we say, well, what's better? Is this better than this? Mm-hmm. It's rarely that black and white. It depends yeah. which lens you look through. So are you looking through the carbon lens, the recycle lens, the human rights lens, the uh, circularity lens? That- well, it's where this standardization needs to come in, like you're saying, back to, go- I mean, relies on the government doing something, which is improbable but, but you know it's one of the challenges isn't it it's where we need sort of a level playing field where it's easy to see and quantify all of these things whereas at the moment it can vary so much it can be just a complete nightmare to actually find this information out and if that's the case people just won't do it and yeah and and the issue that all all yeah my the, the peers in our sector have is that we all yeah we all want to try to be the best you know we're all sort of pushing ahead but there should be a benchmark a base mm. a baseline that we should all have to at least achieve or report against um so we've always taken the position that we don't we're, we're not interested in getting commercial advantage from the sustainability work we, we, we do we'll get the commercial advantage from the product range the quality the um the expertise that you get the service that you get um for you know from from working with an organization um, of our scale, um, I think yeah, there should be just a baseline though of uh, you know of sort of what's a, a minimum standard of sort of sustainable performance, and everybody should be reporting in the same way. The issue is there are loads, of, and if I were to say this to to ten different people, ten different people would come back and say, well, this is the standard you should use, or this is the mm. baseline, or this is, and the, and the reality is because we're investigating all of them at the moment, we don't know which one to. Uh, to yeah. align ourselves to absolutely it's a really it's a really big challenge i mean we're looking at um 
there's some things I'm doing that I can't really talk about at the moment. But but one of the things we're looking at is ESG and how we actually use that to in, to quantify what we're doing as a business to demonstrate how sustainable we are. However, as you read through the documents, you realise there's so much stuff we're doing that's not there, um, or that could be quantified and isn't, um, or perhaps the view it takes is incorrect. And I don't know if you found this, but what we're noticing is some of the people that have written some of these documents are clearly sort of financial um, economist types, not engineers or whoever it may be that's actually delivering the solution on the ground. And because of that disconnect, it's creating an issue where, it's, it, yeah, as I say, it's not quantifiable or the metrics are not suitable to actually monitor it correctly. So we're sort of looking at now going, well, actually, we're going to have to write our own to, make, to actually measure effectively how to do this. So I don't know if that's something you guys have kind of come across. I don't know if you want to give a bit of a summary of ESG so people know a bit more about what I'm talking about, because you probably know more about it than I do. Well, I'm, I'm very focused on the uh, environmental sustainability side of things, which is very much about what the products are made of, how they're made, and, and what they do. Um, that's the, the sort of first thing that people think about when they think about a sustainability strategy. But we've already talked about balancing the social, the envir environmental, and the economic. We've always recognised um, that the S of ESG, the social element, um, is, is, is absolutely vital. You've got to put people at the heart of your um, of your sustainability strategy. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm. And I think that you know, to be really lofty about it, if you look back and go, well, you know, all the environmental stuff isn't about saving the planet; it's about sustaining human life on the planet. And if you're going to protect human life you know you've got to think about the people right at the start so it's something again because we sort of recognize that early on we've invested in it i think we're the only business in the sector that i know of certainly who employs a full-time business in human rights mm -hmm. person and elaine my colleague is at director level on that because it's at the core of what we do and it's um so just to give you a, a sort of some some of the uh, examples of the works that we did, the, the work that we do, you know, we import a lot of um, natural stone. Um, and the, the team will go out and they will interrogate and they will explore the ethical risks of importing that stone. So we look at the human rights um, issues um, that, are, um, yeah, that, that, that might, create, um, might create issues. We monitor that, we look at it really closely, we interrogate it, we measure it against um, you know, against all the best standards. We work with the United Nations Global Compact to understand how best to sort of work in those communities. Um, and then we report that to our customers. You know, we, we, we come up with various tools that help people to understand what the ethical risks are in, you know, for different materials in different countries, in different territories, um, so that they can make decisions um, based on that. But that's always been our strategy to share data to be honest about the data and let people make the decisions based on based on what we send back to them mm -hmm. yeah i think that's the challenge isn't it you can only in the decisions still have to fall to individuals so you just need to make sure they're as informed and engaged as much as possible and you're taking them the other thing is taking them on the journey with you you know um we talked um earlier about sort of um driveways this is a product we haven't really talked about yet but but driveways driveways and then being used as using permeable paving 
to, to mitigate sort of flood risk and improve water quality and those kind of things. But then they end up being ripped out when people move in because they don't know about the product or what they do. So you can easily end up in a situation where you're, you're embedding sustainability objectives and environmental credentials. But if people don't understand them, they can easily be removed when people come and move into a property, say, if they don't like the look of it. It's, it's absolutely about engagement, isn't it? Yeah. And it has to be, you know, we, we can, we're in an, in an interesting place because a lot of this will be driven by legislation or driven by, uh, you know, sensible guidance. Um, we'll provide the solutions and make it easy for people to install that. But there's this sort of, the, the community piece that if you miss that, if you don't get people involved, um, it's not going to wash through. It's, you know, as you, as you say, people will change these features, they won't adopt them, they won't embrace mm -hmm. the features, and it won't, um, you know, you're, you're at risk then of all the good work that you planned in right at the start um, just gets undone because when people, um, I mean, you talked about um, light pollution. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if you design a scheme that's, um, you know, that, that, that's going to be, what's the phrase you used? As a dark skies. So, yeah, if you use a, a scheme like that, and then as soon as you, as soon as the, the homeowners at the end move in, then the first thing they want to do is to, if, if it's not been explained to them why that's important, the first thing they want to do is put a load of lights on because they want... Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, man, it's making sure those credentials and objectives are managed in perpetuity. So yeah, so the dark sky example, dark sky is a regulation that's brought in by sort of national parks and places like that to, to make sure that nature and the unique characteristics of those places are maintained. You know, you can look up and look at the stars while you're out in nature. But actually, those are things that should be carried through into develop, developments everywhere. But as you say, when people move in, they might think, oh, it's a bit too dark here. Yeah. I want a floodlight on the front of the house. Um, so how do you manage that? And you can't manage that unless you think what's going to happen when the human element is introduced. And that applies to a huge amount of different environmental targets um, and objectives. So um, I know people that are doing a lot of work on water. And what they're doing when it comes to water now is they're trying to remove the human element in terms of water management. Because as soon as you have people able to take off a restrictor or whatever, um, they will. Um, and actually, you know, it needs to be sort of hidden away you, so you don't even know that these things are happening. So for example, there's new shower heads now that inject air into the water and it reduces the, the quantity of water by about 60%, but the volume is the same because the water's kind of padded out by the air in it. So it feels like an even more luxurious shower, but with a fraction of the water. So it's making sure those things are embedded. Um, and that works really well for hotels because they've got control. But when it comes to a home, someone could easily change the shower head because they want something that's a bit more interesting. So it's making sure you can find alternative ways to do that so it's applicable to the place that it's being done. But is, isn't it also about explaining to people what those, um, what those features do? Because I think yeah. a lot of people, if they understand it and embrace it, and we see examples of this in, um, in, in my, my background's very much in sustainable drainage and, and sud. Um, and there are examples of um, sustainable drainage features, swales, reed beds, um, attenuation ponds. Um, if they're just plonked in the middle of a development and then the developer leaves and then people come back and go, well, that grass ditch is really annoying because it's, you know, it's getting in my way and I'd like to. So, yeah, they'll go to great pains to try to sort of pave over it. Mm -hmm. um, 
But if people know what it's doing, and if you tell people all the benefits that it's bringing, not just in terms of water, but in terms of all the biodiversity and the air quality and, and all the rest, then people, you know, there are examples where people sort of take pride in it and they maintain it and they look after it. So that, yeah, we always talk about maintenance being mm. a big problem with, um, with spaces. But yeah, if, if you can encourage the community in which the, the, the features exist to kind of look after them, there are great examples where it does work. In, we're based in, uh, our head office is up in, um, in Elland on the end of the Calder Valley and um, Incredible Edible in mm -hmm. Todmorden was a great example of that, you know, of sort of this guerrilla kind of team that would sort of go in and take over unused spaces and, and plant, um, plant food. Mm -hmm. uh, in those spaces and the community embraced it and they took it on and now incredible edibles all over the world it's uh, you know it's it, it's a really uh, it, yeah it's a really nice movement it's a it, yeah, the, the ethos behind it and the benefits that it ultimately delivers um are really positive and that comes from a place of assuming that most people i think it's true most people want to do the right thing yeah but you need to educate them and give the give them the tools to do it yeah, that's it, and take them on the journey with you. If you can yeah. make them feel um, embedded in the process, um, then they're much more receptive to it, and people will take an ownership over what they've been involved with. You know, kids that have been involved in the development of a park or planting trees somewhere are much more likely to protect those trees, and they want to take their family and show them, so it, it sort of filters through, doesn't it? There was um, a great example of that sort of engagement with um, a, a retrofit suds project that we worked on with some brilliant people um, with the BITC um, sort of ran the project um, and the output was um, to find out whether retrofit suds was was cost effective um, so we went to a school in uh, South Manchester and we did a load of sort of suds interventions which meant that they could disconnect from the um, from the water mains for their discharge so they didn't have to pay discharge um, rates they were relatively inexpensive um, so the, the payback was was a relatively short period of time. But, you know, the, the conversations with the with the teachers there were going, oh, you know, it wasn't about the money. It was about all the benefits that mm -hmm. it brought them. You know it, it, you know, it was a fairly unique education space, I suppose. But the fact that when it rained, the kids would go outside and yeah. they'd see the water flowing from one catchment to the next. And then they'd learn about the water cycle and the, you know, frog spawn would be in there. And then all the, you know, all the... All the the biodiversity that attract it, it, you know it's um the multiple benefits that you get from including these features in a space are you know a, a, not priceless mm. but they're incredibly valuable yeah um and by explaining to people what they're doing and by bringing them with you you, you know that's how you that's how you get the most out of it. it is but it's also how you then sell that process and the values behind it to sort of other people to embed in other projects so for example with suds it's about thinking you know okay yeah the target is to deal with water but actually you've then got the community elements you've then got biodiversity and everything else that you want to bring with it as well so I've seen lots of projects with suds some where I've seen suds really nice idea suds are in the middle of a series of houses so they sort of form the green out the front but what they've done is essentially created a canyon in the middle of the housing development. So it was actually a nightmare for, to get to your, the person that lived opposite its house or kids couldn't really play there because you, know, you couldn't kick a ball because it would just go straight into this valley they created in the middle. And, uh, and also you, you end up in the other side of things where they're on the very periphery of the site in sort of an area that's kind of completely left and neglected. And it's sort of going, right, okay, well, how do we rethink how these things work to add the most value? Can we use them to form the spine of the development, weave their way through? So, okay, that's taking the water throughout the development. 
Um, you're then bringing biodiversity and greenery into the new settlement as well. But then also they become the routes that people move. So people are now engaging with biodiversity and the, these features. So, and you know, perhaps you incorporate play alongside it as well. So you're creating a really multifunctional response um, to deal with a multitude of issues, which also benefits the developer because then they don't have to have lots of areas zoned for individual uses. They can go, right, this is the core solution, um, which factors in lots of these considerations we need to have. And uh, uh, you know, the, the developer will be able to charge more for those houses because yeah. people like seeing water out their windows. They like green space. You know, it's, it's one of those things that tacitly is understood. Um, and I'm sure I've seen a study somewhere that puts financial value on it by I haven't been able to find it recently, so I won't quote a number. Um, but it comes back to thinking about these things right at the very start mm. and sort of designing them in. So it's um, from a designer's point of view, I think that's the it's understanding all the issues that you that you've got, and it comes back to something uh, that you said earlier. You know, it's like you don't you shouldn't start with the development and going right. Well, we're going to put these houses here, and how we're going to fit everything around it. You basically build all the the water features, the biodiversity, the infrastructure, yeah. yeah, put that in and then put your dwellings around that in order to create this, this space that's functional, that's attractive, that's that's workable and practical. Yeah. And the challenge for us as a manufacturer, because we're not designers and you know we're not developers, but the challenge for us is to come up with the products and the systems that make it easy for designers to incorporate those systems. And that's the real that's the the real sort of exciting opportunity for us in the in the what it does mm. piece of the sustainable product um, journey. You know, it, it, it's understanding what the problems are because we all know that putting trees in an urban space is good, and we all accept that. Um, yeah, that, I think the argument's been one that putting green space in in urban developments brings all the you know the air quality, water quality, water management amenity all the multiple benefits that you'll get from this kind of space um but it's not easy is it and yeah the hard landscaping part we've been involved in that for a long time we're the experts in that and then you know we've got um landscape architects who are uh you know arboriculturalists who are brilliant at doing the green stuff but we need to manage the transition points mm. and it's the transition between that hard and soft landscaping that traditionally has been very difficult to design or fiddly to design and then tricky to install so that's very much where our focus area is as a business yeah we're really engaged with that and um a lot of the ideas are really quite simple mm -hmm. you know a lot of the concepts are really quite simple a lot of the things that people are asking us for are not complicated to do but it's just um it's just understanding what the problems are and then bringing those to the table so i'm really i'm really excited again ideas that we've had for a long time uh, that we've been kicking around and we've been talking about but now there's a real appetite um, both internally from us as a business and externally from customers you know there's a real appetite to sort of solve these problems and to and to create the kind of spaces that uh, yeah that people are going to want to live and work and play in and that are going to be resilient to the to the onset of climate change because we talked a lot about sort of mitigation about the carbon issue about reducing our harm on the environment but climate change is happening um you know we've seen examples of that in terms of extreme heat earlier on this year in terms of all the flooding that goes on um 
because it's happening, we need to create spaces that are resilient to these kind of... Um, yeah, but it goes back to something we were, we were going to talk about, sort of mitigation and, and adaptation and sort of the difference between those two things. I, th I think it's important to understand... It, it, this is a model that we, we adopted and it's not unique to us by any means, but it just really helps to understand um, what your... It, it really helps to sort of think about um, your sustainability strategy in those in in those two strands. You know, are you looking to mitigate your harm on the environment? From our point of view, that's driving carbon out of our operations, driving carbon out of our materials, and reporting those um, th those reductions as clearly and as openly as possible. Um, but then adaptation is the acceptance that the human race didn't do what it needed to do 20, 30, 40 years ago um, and that climate change is happening. It's increasing faster. You know, all, the, all the numbers sort of are demonstrating that, that that's happening. And even if you don't believe the numbers, if you've got a window, you can see it's raining. You felt it was incredibly hot earlier on in the year. Yeah, those, those things are, are coming coming out uh, those things are coming down the pipes hard and fast and yeah. we need to um we need to be sure that we need to design new spaces so they're resilient to them and we need to adapt existing spaces um to, to cope with those demands absolutely i mean i i try and it's going to sound really bad but i try and take a view of that um we can kind of ignore climate change in a way because a lot of the issues we have are there irrespective of climate change it's just going to make them all worse so we know we have to do a lot more in terms of making communities more cohesive. Uh, we need to take people with us on the journey. We know that there's any, you know, we were talking again in the break about energy and how we know that um, actually the UK is facing a huge energy issue in transmission of energy, not just in terms of production of energy, which means things are going to have to go off grid. There's going to have to be more local energy production, all of these kind of things. That's irrespective of climate change. That's going to have to happen because our grid is is, doesn't function in, as well as it should do. So a lot of these realities are there, like the water issues we've got. They're just all going to be exacerbated, be that in terms of trying to meet these carbon objectives or to be just generally more sustainable um, to, to adapt. So they kind of all need to be there to tackle these things anyway. It's just, And that's where the mitigation and adaptation comes in because for me, it's you're, you're mitigating a current issue but with a view that we know that it's going to also get worse. So it's trying to resolve problems we've already got, um, but with the provision to, and the capacity to deal with the future issues that, that, that will come, which is why I think a lot of people, um, I mean, we're meeting less and less of them as becoming more unbelievably obvious that we're facing these big climate issues um, are sort of against it. And you sort of go, well, forget about that because we've got all these other problems that need the same solution anyway. Um, this is just a multiplier of the issue, and and that's the to me that's the very very crux of it, which is why infrastructure has to become such an important strategy, and we have to change this view of lovely fluffy landscape. Um, it's infrastructure. It's part of the infrastructure of um, society and biodiversity. That's part that goes alongside the water, so the blue infrastructure and the grey infrastructure, which is all the hard surfaces and the buildings. So actually, green, blue, grey. That is the strategy that has to sort of drive everything, which resolves all of that, and then we figure out where properties and things go after. And I, th I, th I think you're absolutely right. What, what's the worst that can happen if we adopt that strategy? Yeah. You know, if you know, you could talk to, you know, people who don't 
believe in climate mm -hmm. change, right? But you can describe to them a landscape or, or a development that includes beautiful green spaces, mm -hmm. that manages water through it really nicely, that provides all the biodiversity options, that provide cohesive communities. Why wouldn't you do You're right. Why wouldn't we do that anyway? Yeah, I mean, there's a really classic um, meme um, of, of it where there's someone, you know, someone talking about climate change and the issues and all this kind of thing, and then someone in the audience going, but why are we doing this? It's going to cost thousands, blah, blah, blah. and what if it's not real? And then um, there's someone at the back going, yeah, but we might just make the world a better place. Like, it, you know, it, it kind of is irrelevant in a way. It's, it's, it's really hard when you talk about this not to sound like some evangelical yeah, kind it's of true, yeah. but but the, but the truth is that's what we're all engaged in. Anybody mm -hmm. in the sort of, um, in, in the infrastructure, it, it's about making things that are robust, practical, manageable, livable. Um, um, yeah, why wouldn't you make it as, as beautiful? And as... viable, I think. Yeah. Because just to go back to the economic side, like you have to make sure these things are viable, but it's changing the way economically we account for things. So for example, if we do a development that, okay, yes, that development might make you a load of money, but actually if that's having a significant detriment to the water supply or um, the cost of living there for bills and everything is astronomical, is it actually economically viable? And actually we need to look at those impacts it has because we know that those things incrementally across many developments have a very big cumulative impact and they need to be accommodated for within each project. So it's kind of making sure those things are embedded all the way through. And actually, you know, economics isn't just, you know, the funds coming in to build something and the cash coming out after you sell it. Um, obviously that is it, but you need to accommodate those things within that process to see if it is actually viable. Because taking the shortcut, yes, you might make more money, but actually it, in the long term, it becomes much less viable um, for people that are actually gonna inhabit that or, or, or purchase it or whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can't, again, you can't ignore the, the financial mm. um, sort of responsibility that you've got to, you know, to, to create sustainable businesses that keep up with people employed and keep you know sort of taxes sort of uh, flowing around communities um but you're right you know you can't just focus on the financial profit again if you just look at the economic thing mm -hmm. then ignore the environmental and the social then that's not going to work we can see examples of where it's uh, where it isn't working so mm -hmm. um you know it's, it all comes back to those tenets doesn't it yeah. pulling things together and making sure they work um they work in conjunction a quick message from our sponsors. As a big brand manufacturer leading discussions across all aspects of ESG, this episode is a perfect fit for our sponsor Marshalls, as not only are some of their team in it, but they're also sponsoring it too. As well as investing in renewable energy and water recycling across their manufacturing network, the firm was also exploring a range of eco-technologies to pave the way for even lower product carbon impacts in the future. Read more about their latest work on product carbon labeling in the link in the episode description below. So in terms of the future, what type of things are you guys looking at in terms of sustainability and the environment as a company to do? Because there's so many things we've already talked about that are being done, but from your perspective, what more could you do or what are you looking to do? And what challenges are there that are stopping you from potentially doing some of those things? Um, the, well, stripping it back then to the uh, you know, how it's made, what it's made of and what it does. Um, we're, how it's made operationally we're you know we've got all our targets to try and reduce our, our emissions as much as uh, you know as much as we possibly can um for example um well actually a, 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 an interesting little anecdote about our sort of um 
or an interesting anecdote to talk about our um, sort of carbon reduction journey. We started out on a project um, quite a few years ago now to install solar on all of our manufacturing works. Uh, but shortly afterwards, we switched to a, a green energy tariff. We invested in that. You know, it cost us money, but it was the right thing to do, and it helped us to hit our net zero targets. So the question cropped up immediately afterwards. Well, if we're on a green energy tariff, why are we bothering putting solar up? Because you can't, you can't double count it. it w when we ran the maths, and obviously with energy prices going up, we suddenly realised that um, putting solar on... Um, builds financial resilience into the mm. company and it means that we can use the funds that you know that generates to or, or that, that protects to invest in greener technologies into you know more efficient processes that are further going to um you know the, the, the cleaner operations up um so what started out as a climate mitigation exercise has ended up being a, a sort of a resilience and adaptation uh, exercise um, so yeah, we're, we're looking across our operations to uh, to drive carbon out of our operations um, even more. Um, in terms of um, what things are made out of and how things are made, the, you know, the, the the projects that we've got on with are, are really exciting. You know, it's really cutting edge stuff. Um, and because we were you know, because of the scale um, that we operate on, um, the opportunities that it presents to um, to make carbon savings are, are immense. So that, that's a lot of the carbon sequestration work that I was talking about earlier. Um, yeah, we're applying for massive European um, sort of funding projects to support our um, support our endeavours in that area. Um, we're working with people uh, with peers in our sector probably more than we ever have. Um, and it's a cliche when people talk about collaboration being important because it's you know it's a, it's a nice thing to talk about. But I'm seeing more of it. Than we ever have before. You know, we're working with our suppliers. We're working with, um, you know, with our competitors as well to a degree, to understand and to share best practice. Um, so we're looking to, and we're looking at new materials. I've talked about the um, the cement-free blocks that we're, um, yeah, that we that we've already produced. Um, we're looking at different, you know, the sequestration work that we're looking at. Um, but in terms of what it does. Um, Absolutely, green infrastructure is at the heart of our NPD now. Mm. Yeah, tr trying to come up with ways to to simply and easily um, create sort of green spaces that are going to thrive and going to last um, is is right at the top of our um, new product uh, development agenda at the moment. Um, so it's yeah, it's, so, it's it's really exciting times. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. So is that. Things like sort of new types of permeable solutions, permeable things to support sort of vegetation, um, like trees, for example, um, which are and um, tree roots and stuff in sort of existing landscapes. What type of sort of green infrastructure products are you looking to sort of things that are, that are tree pits? Absolutely, um, things that um, support the growth of trees, um, things that uh, you know systems and products that support the inclusion of rain gardens mm -hmm. um, ways of managing water across spaces to to make uh, the inclusion of sustainable drainage systems easier and, and more off the shelf mm -hmm. because yeah there are great examples of brilliant um, suds designers who are you know conjuring up these brilliant bespoke designs um, but we've got the the reach and the scope uh, and the scale to to make those kind of features mass market. So it's, um, I mentioned earlier, it's a, a lot of it is around the interventions, 
the interface between soft landscaping and hard landscaping. Um, we continue, I mean, we, we've been selling permeable pavement for more than 20 years. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's really successful. It's a great example of a product that is uh, a hybrid between something that's practical, pragmatic, you know, looks good, but it also slows the flow of water mm. in the catchment. It provides water cleansing benefits. It provides a controlled flow of clean water. Um, we, we've, I don't know that we need to develop that anymore because it's, it's, a, you know, a, a really there? well functioning. Yeah, product. I mean, we use it as a, our default on all of our projects now. As well, much. you should. Yeah, man. I'm pleased to hear it. Yeah, I mean, we, we have conversations. We've had conversations in the past. Why shouldn't all paving be permeable? Why shouldn't yeah. all block paving be permeable? Um, because even if it can't infiltrate, you know, it's still Capacity. you still get the water, yeah. uh, water, um, the water quality benefits. You're still controlling the flow of the water, um, and you're still ultimately creating a puddle-free, safe um, surface for people to use. But we recognise um, that although that's a really useful component in your water management portfolio, it doesn't provide the air quality, the biodiversity, the amenity benefits that, are, um, that soft suds do. Mm. So, so that's the, the missing piece for us. We've got a really good understanding of the water management chain. Um, and yeah, with, the, with the sort of hard solutions, we've we've kind of got that covered it's more about that space is more about educating people how to link them up how what order to consider those different um techniques those different systems in. yeah um so it's, it's more turning to sort of like a facilitation kind of role and helping facilitate that transition to that type of design basically yeah because we always say it's it, it's about and you know as a, as a suds purist I always encourage, uh, yeah, we always encourage people to manage water on the surface as much as possible mm -hmm. and to cram in as much as green infrastructure as you can. But we've got to accept that in the sort of tight urban landscapes that we were frequently designing, and sometimes you're going to have to put water under the ground. Sometimes you're going to yeah. need to use underground tanks and pipes. But it's making sure that people don't automatically go to default that. Yeah. to that straight away. You know, go through the, the hierarchy of, uh, of options first, and you might well end up there. Yeah, mm -hmm. good, good suds practice recognizes that no one solution's the, the right way yeah. forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we're constantly trialing different types of permeable surfaces. We have done for years, and honestly, concrete block paving keeps coming back as being one of the most straightforward, easy to install, um, you know, relatively inexpensive. Um, certainly, if you think about all the benefits it brings mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the, I won't repeat the multiple benefits yeah. again, but, you know, in, in terms of all the benefits it brings, it, you know, you, you're getting an awful lot for um, for not a lot of money. The problem is less about, and that's an example where the, the solution is there, but, you know, I still talk to people who are terrified of using it because they think it's new technology because it's only been around for a quarter of a century. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's, as, as we said many times, it's about taking people sort of with you and educating people as well, isn't it? And that's part of the role with sustainability. It's not just doing your thing in a little silo. It's thinking about how you collaborate and take people with you. So what, what other things are you kind of involved with um, operationally um, as a company? Is there, because there's a lot, I've, juggling my words here. I know there's some big suppliers that are moving to sort of electric vehicles i know there's one which has moved to um, electric um, haulage um, not in the uk but abroad 
Um, and they're looking at a lot of those kind of other operational things that they do to try and make them as sustainable as possible. Transport's the big, um, the big issue mm -hmm. that we have, that, that we can't solve yet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're working with suppliers, we're working with, um, with uh, yeah, we're working with experts in that area um, to, uh, to understand what we can do, but we, we yeah, with the amount of, we, we move a lot of heavy stuff around um, and we move it long distances and it has to be reliable and it has to be um, relatively, inex it has to be inexpensive. Um, the technology isn't there yet for that. So we, we, we're poised and ready to exploit it when it becomes available. Because um, that's it, you know, cement's, cement's one of the big issues for us. Transport's the other big issue. We can solve the cement yeah. when we're working on that. Transport, to be quite honest, is, you know, it'll be, it feels like it'll be a while before we're using a full electric fleet or hydrogen fleet or mm. some cleaner form of... Um, of transport. In the meantime, though, our company car policy is, you know, we, we now offer, you know, I'm looking at my colleagues with electric cars, they're, they're, every time people change, they're changing onto electric cars, because that's a great way of, uh, of you know, cutting our, cutting our emissions. Mm. Um, so we'd, yeah, I've run out of steam there, talking, about, <laughs> <laughs> talking operationally. It's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it is, it is difficult. Cut that bit out though, Rob. <laughs> No, it is very difficult when you think sort of operationally about how to reduce your emissions because some of the things are are not that straightforward. I mean, we, for example, um, our practice, we try to be as paper-free as we can. However, sometimes when we're doing designs or markups, um, you need to do it on paper. Like, it's not, it doesn't feel as good doing it digitally. Um, and it's thinking, right, okay, well, actually, what's the time difference in us doing this so what's the efficiency where's the cost all this kind of thing as well so we do still do some markup not very often but we do still do some markups on paper so we're not completely paperless because we think it's a little bit impractical for what we need um so there are always challenges i mean one um thing i've been talking about recently with some organizations is in terms of their sort of corporate responsibility in terms of um, expenses that are carried out by the business so for example um if you're hosting an event and you're feeding people, should you be pushing for something to be vegan or vegetarian? And I've had some conversations with some organizations where people have said, well, we're not going to force people to go vegan. And you're sort of saying, well, that's not exactly the point. The point is, as a business, you are making a decision to try and reduce your impact. But you can also go further than that and be smart about the message, which is why, where you want to take people with you and say, okay, well, it's going to be predominantly or the default vegetarian, vegan, but if people want, they can opt in for meat. And if there is meat, it's gonna be from um, a farm that's involved in regenerative agriculture or rewilding, or the, food, the meat is coming from a conservation process or culling or something like that, where actually it's from something that supports the sustainable management of our landscape and environment. And that way you're pushing people to a more sustainable option in the first place. And if they do wanna opt in, they're getting something that is supporting these processes. So that's, I like to use that as an example because it's quite a good way of thinking about being more sustainable but also educating people on an important topic that actually we should eat less meat but if we are going to eat it, this is the type of place it has to come from um, and then supporting that as sort of a business. And we're looking now at how do you embed that in expenses. So for example, 
um, if I go out for a meal while I'm away with work and I go to Nando's, should I be able to claim that chicken on my um, expenses? I don't know Nando's policy, I haven't looked at it, but that's an example where you start thinking, actually, should we be supporting that as a business for sustainability-wise? So there's those kind of things as well that are starting to sort of like creep in in terms of sort of corporate responsibility. I think, um, I th I think that's an interesting one and one that we haven't, uh, to my knowledge, um, sort of put into, put into place yet. But yeah, there, there is a responsibility in, you know, how you, and I know, you know, there, there, there are individuals within my organization who will always look for the, you know, the independence yeah. and the, you know, the, the, the local people and they're, when they're eating, they, you know, they, they'll shun the chains mm. uh, out of choice. Um, so yeah, maybe that's something that we could drive into policy um, and, and, you know, it's, it's about thinking about it all the way through, isn't it? And even the little change. I think but culturally, we've still got work to do to embed it with, you know, there's two and a half thousand, we're a big organisation, there's two and a half thousand people that, that work here. And, you know, it's constantly talking to people about making them consider the choices that they make individually and, yeah. you know, how that can, um, uh, yeah, can, can have a big impact on, on what we do as a business. But that's, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point and one that I'll take back to the office. Yeah, because it's, it's about corporate responsibility, not individual responsibility, if you know what I mean. They can do whatever they want as individuals, but the company are not necessarily yeah. going to support that or, or, or whatever. I heard that with um, the, uh, we use one-click LCA uh, as the EPD, um, the, the, the EPD software that we use. They're, they're excellent, uh, you know, an excellent organization and they seem to be the, the market leader. But that's exactly what happened when the, you know, when one of uh, one of my colleagues was taken out for dinner to, uh, you know, following a, a conference and they made a very um, clear stance and they said, well, you know, it's going to be vegetarian mm. and if you want meat, you can pay for it yourself. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's a, a kind of an example of walking the walk, isn't it? Mm. Um, and, I, and I think that's the kind of, uh, yeah, I, I'm fully supportive of that. So, uh, so I'll take that back to the office, <laughs> Niall, and I'll talk to her. I, I do know that the procurement teams, uh, it, it, you know, we got the procurement on team with the, we got the procurement team on board with this agenda some time ago. So it's something that they, yeah, they, they interrogate our suppliers and our partners about on a regular basis. The suppliers and partners have much the same issue that we do in that it's very difficult to come up with standard methods and standard models of, of what to report and how to report it. Um, but yeah, because they're being asked the question, because it's on the agenda, we can be confident that we're, you know, our supply chain is, um, you know, is, is being responsible. Yeah, that's absolutely core to, core to our principles. No, no I, think that's, I think that's so important. And that's why I like to raise this sort of, this idea of kind of the, the food side of things because it's not you can ignore the fact it's about food because it's that kind of strategy and principle going if we think about it this way we're doing something sustainable but we're also teaching people about you know that actually if you are going to eat these things or do things that are less sustainable think about like how to find solutions that are beneficial that, that, that work in different ways so it's not just going let's be it's not that it's basically the carbon argument let's not just look at carbon and let's not yeah. just look at it as meat being bad let's look at it and go right how can we use that as a tool to educate people and also potentially save um emissions or whatever else as well so it's interesting to get people's opinions on that because it's a different way of kind of looking at some of these problems and i think this is what i've liked about this conversation is that it's not a linear 
this is the same with everything. There's no one answer. There's a lot of different options and ways to look at a problem. And there's no necessarily right way to do it. It's kind of finding your way and people adapting and looking at it in different ways and coming up with different solutions is part of resolving the, the challenge that we all face. And I think it's, I always think it helps to, to pull it back to your own, you know, your own household, the, mm. the way you live your life and, and then think, well, is my, am I living the values that I would like our, yeah. our organization to do? And you're absolutely right. It's, it, it's, yeah, we, we mentioned earlier, you know, we say it feels like the Wild West at the moment, but that's better than it was six years. It was no yeah. West six years ago. That's the line we like to use. Yeah, we've gone from no West to the Wild West. And, yeah, there will be more sort of um, consistency and standardization in, in years to come. Um, but in the meantime, there's loads of stuff that we can do. And I think it's also important to accept that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. Mm. You know, and if, you know, when you're pushing the boundaries and when you're trying things that are new um sometimes you're going to back the wrong horse and sometimes you're going to get things wrong um but that's that, yeah that's how we're going to learn and it's um i think what's difficult for us as a business is having the confidence to sort of say when we've got things wrong mm. um but it's yeah, one we, of the most we, important bits. We get more right yeah. than we get wrong, um, but it's. Uh, but I think you know, sharing the things that you, that you got wrong is how is how people learn. Yeah, and exactly, and people can learn from your mistakes as yeah. much as you can learn from them. And this is where that collaboration things are coming together. You know, it's like, you know, it, this is how we're going to drive things um, forward in a in a healthier way. Um, and I'm I'm really encouraged by that kind of cross fertilization um, of, of best practice. Mm. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely the way to look at it. And um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been um, really interesting to find out about and, and understand a bit more of kind of the challenges and what's sort of going on. Um, but I think we'll probably stop stop there because um, we've covered so much. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating. And um, I look to speak to you in the future and find out what else you guys have got going on. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, as I keep saying, it's a fast moving space. So. In a year's time, I'm sure I'll be coming with all sorts of new uh, things as well. But um, thanks for having me. That's right. No, that's brilliant. And we look forward to it. Cheers. Sorry to interrupt, but this episode is sponsored by Water Offsets. If you are working on projects where you might need environmental credits, then they are the people to go to. They specialize in not only biodiversity net gain credits, but also water neutrality and nutrient neutrality too. So if you have an estate, a farm, or some other kind of landowner, um, or interested in that kind of project, then they could really help you find you know, new ways of funding those projects and diversifying your land and farms take you through the whole process. And if you're a developer who's run into problems, then actually they can help provide those credits that you need to unlock your land and get your development done. So check out Water Offsets if you need help with any of those things. Many thanks. <laughs>